to take it from here? So he says that I, I don't handwrite my notes for the very fact that I can't read my own handwriting. So, yes, I was fixing to say, my, uh, my grandma used to say when I was a kid that I should have been a doctor. Uh, also, my, my little second cousin, when we were back at my mama and daddy's house the other night, uh, my second cousin actually has better handwriting than I do. He's seven. So it's, it's more legible than my own, actually. So if y'all would, turn in your Bibles then to Hebrews chapter 6. Now, we got through the really, really hard portion the last time around. So we've kind of boxed a little bit with the apostle to the Hebrews, and we've listened to what he has to say, and he's hit us in the stomach a few times, and now we go to verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12 of Hebrews chapter 6. So this is, the title I've given this message is The Assurance of Better Things. So primarily we're going to be discussing just that, assurance. I ended my last sermon on that happy note, just alluding to what's going on in verse 9, just to make sure that he's talking about this in a metaphorical, in a hypothetical way, in a certain way, in the preceding verses. So let's go ahead and jump into Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. And we read, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Would you join me this evening in a word of prayer as we begin to peruse this text? Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this Lord's Day that you've given us. We thank you for the text of your holy scriptures. We thank you for the soothing balm that it is as well, that you have given unto your servants, that you have given to your people, that we may hear the warnings of your scripture, O Lord, and turn back to you before it is too late. And that you also, like a father who waits for his wayward son to come home, you are truly waiting for us and have assured us that we are your children. So we do pray that you would illumine our minds through this text, that you would guide us through it, that you would teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may grasp the cloak of Christ, as it were, for our healing spiritually. We ask all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm sure that when you were a child, I know when I was a child at least, uh, my dad gave me had to whip me a few times. You know, We still did that as old school as we were in the McCarter household at least. So I would get a whipping if I did something wrong. That was just the way that it was. It took a lot to get my dad that mad a lot of times in order to whip me, but nonetheless he would still do that for me. I can remember three specifically actually. Probably still carry a little bit of pain uh, down there a little bit from the memory of that as well. But afterwards, though, afterwards, after he had done that, though, after he had chastened me with the rod, as it were, he was always quick to remind me that he loved me, though. He would always take me in his arms and hug me, mention how much he loved me, and then left me alone for a little while to do that little lower lip quiver thing that you, you suck in your lower lip a little bit and you're still you know, sobbing a little after that. Uh, but he chastened and warned me because he loved me. But he was always quick to remind all of his children that he loved us even after discipline. 
It's always the first to grab us and embrace us in his arms and say, though I'm doing this, always know that I love you. And the reason why I'm doing this is so you'll know that behavior is harmful to you. Most of y'all have had children or infants as well. If the two-year-old goes to reach for the oven, I saw this last Sunday as well, reaches for the oven that's very, very hot and is going in there, you're going to pull him back as fast as possible and possibly take that wooden spoon that you've got and pop him on the hand. Now, are you doing that because you're mad at him or because you hate the kid? Absolutely not, of course. But if you said, well, I love him and I just don't want to discipline the kid at all or warn him, go ahead and let him experience that pain, well, he's going to lose his arm or his hand probably because it's going to clamp down on that 400-degree oven and he's not going to have usage of that hand anymore or at least for a little while. So, too, the apostle to the Hebrews is not trying to bully us into narrow orthodoxy with this preceding warning passage. We went through that the last time when y'all were with me through the book of Hebrews. That was one of the strongest warning passages and also one of the hardest sermons that I've had to prepare and preach as well. The apostle is not trying to bully you or bully me into narrow orthodoxy. He's trying to warn you. Now, just like a father who's disciplined his children or warned them, he's going to take you in his arms, as it were, and embrace you. He's going to come in with sweet and blessed assurance that you can and should have in Jesus Christ. This is the gift that God gives to his people, that we are all called to have this blessed assurance within us. The normal Christian life is not to be one that is full of depression or full of angst or full of wondering if God is going to strike you down at any moment. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is one of assurance, pockmarked every now and again by times of depression, pockmarked by sorrow, pockmarked by grieving over the remaining sin that wells within us, but the Lord does not have that as the first and foremost plan of our life. That's not the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is one that is marked by an assurance of the things that you have believed in, an assurance that God himself has promised these things and will bring them to pass. So what I want us to see from this text is after the stern warning, the apostle seeks to soothe his listeners with assurance that they will not fall away. We're going to see that underneath three headings. We're going to see first in verse 9, the conviction of assurance. We're going to see in verse 10, the grounds of assurance. We're going to see in verses 11 through 12, the hope of assurance. Notice that theme that's running through this text too. And this is also one of the reasons, theologically speaking as an aside, why we as good Reformed Christians, we don't necessarily shout out once saved, always saved. That has a lot of theological baggage with it, doesn't it? That makes it seem like, well, I can go live however I feel like, and I'm going to be just fine in the end. But God causes us to persevere. We as Reformed Christians do believe in the perseverance of the saints and eternal security. What's that mean? That the one who has begun this race in earnest, truly will persevere to the end because it's not him who's going to the end alone. It's because Christ Jesus is grabbing him by the hand, as it were, or you or me, and whenever we start to fall down by the narrow way, he's going to pick us back up and say, come on, we got to keep moving forward. Or if we try to venture off to the side, he's going to corral us back in. We have these assurance of things. This is one of the most beautiful doctrines of the Reformed faith. Now, most of y'all know, of course, history is a good guide on this as well. The Reformed faith is one, that's one of our 
big markers as well of being Reformed Christians. We believe in assurance. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. You know, one of the great cardinals of the Catholic Church during the 16th century, during the Reformation era, he was asked what the worst doctrine that the Reformers ever came up with was. And surely you would think, well, it's justification by faith alone, or it's grace alone, Christ alone, that works have no part in your justification whatsoever. But this cardinal said the worst thing that the Reformers ever came up with was assurance. That you can truly be assured that when I die, I'm going to be in heaven and that Christ truly has saved me. That totally nerfs anything that the Roman Catholic Church has to say. The Arminians as well. But this text is going to show us that we can and should have that firm assurance of hope. This is going to totally go against that idea. That's one of the big reasons why I truly believe that Reformed Christianity and our doctrine of assurance and perseverance is not only biblical, but it is clearly biblical. It's not something that you have to necessarily build up very high because it's very plainly within the text of Scripture. It's one of those low-hanging fruits. It's not something like a giant theological contraption that you have to spend five years figuring out. It's very clearly here. He even uses the word assurance in the text. So we're going to bring that out of this text this evening. So let's look first at the conviction of assurance in verse 9. We read, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. Now, this is a conviction that the apostle is giving. He and his band, he's speaking in the first person plural, we. He and his apostolic band of believers, we are sure, though we are speaking in this way, that should draw you back to the previous text, to that really, really hard warning passage. Though he is speaking in these really hard to understand, in harsh terms, as it were, yet... That's going to be that big contrasting word right there. Yet, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. That's emphatic in the Greek as well. We are certain of these things concerning you, beloved brothers and sisters. This is a conviction in spite of stern warnings. It is a conviction concerning salvation. He is certain of better things concerning you. That this warning passage is not indicative or descriptive of you as a person, of you as a believer. This is not going to happen. Why? He's certain of it. He's convicted of this assurance that you should have and that I should have as well. He's convicted and certain of these things concerning salvation that it is describing you. He calls us beloved. He does not call us apostate. He does not call us wayward children. He calls us beloved. It's what Christ calls his people. That's what the apostles call their people. That's what Christians are. We are beloved of the Father. We have an assurance that He is our Father, that Christ truly has saved us, and that the Spirit truly is working and has worked within us. The apostle is certain of these things. Though he is given these great warnings, he's got a few more later on as well as you unpack the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and so forth, as well as a little bit in chapter 12. He's got more warnings as well. But though he speaks in this way, he's convinced of different things for the one who is truly a Christian. This verse, can, this text cannot therefore speak of one who has once had justification or justifying faith and then loses that status and goes by the wayside. He's convinced that that's not the case for the ones who are truly listening to the warnings. 
they truly are believers. So this is a conviction that he has, and it's going to open up the rest of his understanding of assurance. Things that belong to salvation, he's looking at his people, and he's understanding that I can see the fruit that is within you. Even if they are having some hard times, they're considering going back to the things of the old covenant, back to Judaism, as it were. He knows them better than that, that they're not going to do that because he's certain of the things concerning salvation that are within them. He's seen the fruit. He knows that they know this doctrine. He knows that they have come to the heavenly Mount Zion, not the earthly Mount Zion. They have not come to the temple made with hands, as it were, as he'll unpack later on, but they have come to the heavenly temple, that you truly are born again. He's convinced of these things, that this warning is not going to have as great of an impact on you as it should. Why is that? That's a good thing as well. Why is that? Because you're not going to fall away. You're heeding the warning. He's convinced of these things. Now, brothers and sisters, assurance does not belong to anyone. However, it does in your case. It does to you if you are beloved. For these beloved believers, as well as for you, if you are truly clasping Christ and grasping onto his cloak and holding onto him for dear life, that is good assurance if you are holding on to Christ and continuing to progress further. But assurance does not need to be offered to everyone. I remember listening to a well-known biblical counselor who one biblical counselor stood up and asked the question, well, if somebody's coming to us and is questioning their salvation, should we just automatically say, you just need to have more assurance? That's not necessarily the case. Why is that? Because if they're truly not born again, we don't need to give them a false assurance. There is such a thing as a false assurance. If someone is relying simply upon a past profession, or their works alone, or a misunderstanding of who God is. There's a real famous book out there called Love Wins. Don would know about that one. I know about that one as well. It's one of those that you just don't want to read at all. Why is that? Because it's a misunderstanding of who God is, that God would never cast a soul into hell. That's against what God is. God is love. Love wins. Everybody wins in the end, and everybody enjoys a great time in heaven, no matter if you live like hell upon the earth. That's a false assurance based on a misunderstanding of God. Or, as we were talking in the back earlier, somebody who said, I made a profession of faith when I was six years old. I walked down the aisle. I saved the car. The pastor baptized me a week later. I haven't been in church in 35 years, by the way, and I've had some addictions along the way that I haven't repented of, and I've done all of these things in my life, but I know that I'm going to heaven. Well, Mr. So-and-so, why are you going to heaven? Well, my assurance is that that thing I did when I was six, I tell you, we, I, when I was a kid, we split a church over that too because our pastor had the moxie enough to say, that's false. You have no assurance whatsoever and you do not need to have assurance. So if that's indicative of me or indicative of you, we don't need to have assurance or have that soothing balm. We need to come to Christ. If that's indicative of you, oh brother or sister, you don't need to just simply say, well, God is love and love wins in the end and I can have a great assurance if there's not proof in the pudding, you don't need to taste the pudding. You need to go to the cross, first and foremost. However, for a Christian, there are things that accompany salvation. These are evidences of a believer's walk with Christ further in life. 
if you're justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, if you're actively being sanctified by the Spirit and you're continuing to progress daily in sanctification, if you have a deeper and clearer understanding of the things of God, if you truly love the Lord even more day by day, if you hate your sin even more and even more, then you should have an assurance that you are truly born again. Jonathan Edwards wrote a great little book on that called Religious Affections. I'd highly recommend it to anybody who would ever read that as well. You can't go wrong with Edwards for the most part, typically. And that's one of his best works because he shows in there that there are certain things that will give you a false assurance or that may or may not be indicative of a Christian. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, I've known a lot of people who really like theology in their life, but they're just as lost as the day that they were born. A love for theology or a love for good literature is not indicative of a Christian. There's a lot of good atheists. My father actually said when he was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, there was an atheist who would come onto campus and take courses. Didn't believe the stuff, but he sure enjoyed it, though. Well, he doesn't need an assurance that he's going to heaven now, does he? That's foolishness. It's not a thing accompanying salvation is if you simply have a liking of theology or you simply want to help people. That's not something that should accompany, that's not something that always accompanies salvation. But there are evidences of a believer's walk. You should be a stronger believer at 50 years, at 60 years, 70 years walking with Christ than you should at two years walking with Christ. Some of y'all have been Christians since before I was born. Not making fun of your ages on that, I promise. However, you have been believers longer than I've been born, I'm certain of it. You should have a greater assurance than I should. You should have a deeper love for Christ than I should. You should be a stronger Christian than I should. You've been at this longer than I have. You're clasping onto Christ even harder than I am at this moment. So there are things that are accompanying salvation that should give you such an assurance. You're pressing forward. There are clear, evidence, clear evidences that accompany salvation. Greater love for God a greater love for his people, a greater love for the word, sacraments, and prayer. You love these things. You have a deeper understanding of them, and you love the God who has given these things even more. And you should also hate your sin even more. You're more aware of your sin. You're more aware of your temptations. I can see that in my own life by way of a side as well, as you should too. I understand a little bit more than I did when I was 19 and became a believer that certain things are more tempting to me than other things. And I shouldn't go closer to those things than I should to these things. That's giving you a greater assurance when you recognize those things. When you recognize this is a sinful attitude that I have in my life or a sinful inclination and you begin to not flirt with it anymore, you run away from it. You actively mortify it. You crucify it. These are giving you greater assurance now, if the apostle is convinced of his listener's salvation, which he certainly seems to be, then you should as well. As I said at the beginning, the normal Christian life is not one pockmarked by doubt, despair, and depression. However, it's not foolishly repeating a mantra that one is saved either. What I mean by that is it's not simply saying, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And then... There's no evidence of it whatsoever, except for why are you going to heaven? Well, I give money to the church. I show up on Easter and Christmas. I'm a good person generally, and God realizes that my good outweighs my bad. You don't need assurance with that. But the Christian life is not one that is simply 
self-flagellating yourself or taking a whip and beating yourself over the back and telling you how horrible you are either. Or telling yourself, well, I'm going to hell for certain and God could never love a person like me and I'm the absolute worst person on the face of the planet and I'm just never going to go to heaven. That's not the normal Christian life either. It's one marked by victory over sin and a blessed assurance as you realize more and more that you truly are a born-again believer of God. Sorry, my son just gave me a look and I heard something come over there, happening over there in the audience. Preaching is awfully fun. There's always distractions, aren't there? But an assurance can come also from testing yourself, from further perseverance when setbacks occur, and hope that is firmly set, not on your own works or the strength of your hands, but on Christ. Your hope is set on Christ, not on yourself, not on what you have done or will do or are actively doing. Those things may be fruits and evidences of what has happened because of what Christ has done. That's where assurance comes from. It comes from your union to Christ, first and foremost. It comes from understanding that one look at the cross and your burdens fall off of your back. It comes because Jesus Christ has said, come to me, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It comes from understanding that I love this man more than I love my own life, more than I love my child's life, more than I love my wife, more than I love a husband. From understanding, this is Jesus Christ. This is the source of my assurance that he has done it, and I do not need to do any more to merit it. So, Brothers and sisters, I want you to think, do you struggle with assurance? Well, if you struggle with assurance, you need to first go back to the root. Question and test yourself. That's what Paul says, after all. Test yourselves to see if these things are true. Test yourself. Don't simply repeat that mantra, I'm saved because I did X, over and over to yourself again. Go back to the scriptures. See what Christ has to say. See what First John has to say. See what the book of Hebrews has to say. Match yourself up to that. Look at Christ for the source of your salvation. If you struggle with assurance, test yourself and look to the great high priest for that assurance. Because God the Father wants you to have assurance. It is his will for you to have assurance as well. It is not his will for you to go beating yourself on the back all the time and living in a depressed state. That's not God's will. It will happen from time to time. You best believe it. But it's not the general state of the Christian. So when you discipline your children when they were kids, why did you do it? Was it because you disliked them or were hostile to them? Well, that's, of course, foolishness. Any parent knows that they show love to their kids even when discipline must arise. You want your kids to know even when you whipped them or even when you talked firmly to them about something, you wanted them to know my, chi- I, my da- mom and dad love me and they dislike what I am actively doing because it's harmful to me. You didn't want your kids to just be afraid of you. You didn't want your kids to be looking around their back all the time thinking, if mom and dad see me doing this, I'm in for it, and then go ahead and do it. You wouldn't want your kids to do that. Neither does the father want us to constantly do that. What kind of father would want his children to be constantly in fear? Well, God the Father doesn't command that in the scripture. There is a reverential fear that we must have. Absolutely. We are to fear God rather than to fear man. But the Father in heaven wants us to have this blessed assurance. Why do we know that? Look in verse 10. 
For God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. This is the grounds of assurance right here. First and foremost, the word right there, I'm reading from the ESV, God is not unjust. This does not have some kind of meritorious design that many people will go to this and say, ah, ah, but he's using the word just here. So therefore, God must be crediting something to us for our works, correct? That can't be the case. But what the Greek means, though, it has the sense of unfaithful. God sees what you're doing. God understands what you're doing. He knows the heart that these things are being done with. And it's almost like it's going back to Philippians 1.6, which Paul wrote, is it not? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you shall continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's because God has begun this good work in you, and he is not so unfaithful as to just forget everything that you are doing or have done or that Christ is doing and that Christ has done, and to simply forget all about that. We're, after all, called to remember the promises of God. It's okay to bring those promises before God as well, is it not? That's what Moses did when God said, I'm going to destroy everybody of this wilderness generation, and I'm going to restart with you. Moses went to him and said, Lord, you know that the Egyptians are going to say, you simply brought us out here into the desert to murder all of us. And then what are they going to think about the glory of God? You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a people and a land, and I know that you're going to see that through. And the Lord said, you are absolutely correct. You've understood my word. And he allowed the people to continue on. It is right to do those things. The work began in us by God. Not only that, but the fruits of the salvation wrought by God. One can look at Matthew 25, verse 40, or look at these things that are being done by the work of God in and through us. Read with me. Your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Now, in the Greek, it's the same word, actually. It also is where we get our word deacon from. You're serving the saints just as you have done, just as you are continuing to serve. It's almost like a wordplay that he's doing. You're served, you're serving. You're constantly doing these things, and you have done these things. These are proof that you are continuing to work out your salvation and trembling. Remember, that's all throughout the New Testament as well. I give you this new commandment that you love one another. You shall know each other by their love of the brethren. That's one of the chief marks of a Christian that should give us assurance. Do you love the church? Do you love the people of the church? Do you love to be here with us? Do you love to fellowship with one another? I can honestly say with most of the folks here, as I look out in each one of your faces across this room, that you truly love the brethren. You truly love each other, and you truly want to help each other. It's a great mark of assurance, is it not? Because a non-believer can't do that. He seeks perhaps to get some advantage over you. He seeks perhaps to gain something from you. But if you do so with a right motive and a clean heart, this work and this love that you have shown for the, His name, that's God's name, it's done in the right motive, you continue to serve the saints and you have served the saints. It's a great marker of assurance, isn't it? The non-believer cares nothing for the church, nor the saints who are within her walls. But the believer certainly does. You realize the strength and the power of the church. You realize the wonderful nature of the church. So, I want us to think about a few other grounds that we have here. The first ground of assurance is for God, there in verse 10. That's the first ground of assurance, for God. 
Assurance does not well up in the heart from our own works and strengths, but it's from God who is at work in us. He is the one who causes us to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. God remembers our salvation process. He remembers the promises that he has given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus Christ is our great high priest as well, mediating before the throne of God as it were, reminding the Father that they are his people just as Moses did for his people in the book of Exodus onwards to Deuteronomy. Christ the mediator has done this, for God has done this good work in you. That's the first ground of assurance, God. If God has done this good work in you, then who can stand against you? Romans 8 as well. Also, another ground, the faithful Christian is marked by a love for the brethren, care of the sheep, and assisting, in particular, the household of the faith. Now, are we to help those outside the wall? Are we to care about the sick and the dying? Are we to care about those who are starving in the streets? You better believe it, absolutely. Christ certainly did as well. But the first and foremost marker of this assurance that he's getting at, it's referring to the church itself. Do you care about your brothers and sisters who are struggling? Do you care about the sheep that are wayward outside of the walls who would seem to get out of the sheep pen, as it were? Do you have a love for them? The apostle is saying, I'm convinced you're not apostates because first God remembers what he has started in you and will persevere you to the end. Also because you truly love the other sheep. You love the brethren. So this is not justification by works. This is not saying that God is meriting this assurance to you because of what you're doing. Because notice the first ground and the context. This is not talking about justification. It's not getting at the same thing that Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 4 or Romans chapter 5 or so on. It's not getting at justification by faith alone. That's a legal term. What he's saying here is it's proof. It's almost getting at the same thing that James is getting at. You say that you have faith, then you must have works that accompany it. If you say, I am saved by faith alone, then I'll show you my faith by my works almost getting at the same thing that James is getting at as well, is it not, brothers and sisters? Though these are markers, fruits that are indicative of a Christian versus an apostate. One of the big ones here, as I mentioned earlier too, is the heart motive, the love that you have shown for his name. This is a big difference as well between the apostate non-believer and between you if you are truly a believer. What is your motivation for doing these things? Is your motivation for getting something out of the deal? Is your motivation for making yourself seem better and uplifted? Or is it because you simply have a need of some kind? Or is it because I'm seeking to glorify God, that's why I'm continuing to do these works? Or that's why I have done these works and seek to do even more? It's out of a motivation and a love for God. It's a zeal for God's name and a zeal in accordance with knowledge. You know who God truly is. You know what he's done in your life. Therefore, I bring these offerings before you. Romans 12, 1 also gets at that. You're a living sacrifice, living these things before the Lord. These works are not done for fame, reward, or applause. They are done for love to God. An apostate or a hypocrite cannot do that because his heart is black as tar within him. So brethren, brothers and sisters, there are certain markers that accompany nearly every object. For instance, if you go to, let's say that you meet somebody who says that I'm going to sell you a truck. A brand new Toyota truck. You're going to this person, and he has a Pontiac Firebird in his front yard. 
We were going to obviously say, this isn't the thing that you promised me. And he says, well, no, 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 this is This is a truck. This is a truck. And you say, well, it doesn't look like a truck. There's no bed to it. It's obviously a 1999 Pontiac Firebird that you're trying to sell me. And he stomps his foot and keeps telling you, I'm telling you, this is a truck right here. Well, if you're not a fool, you're going to understand this guy's out of his mind. This isn't a truck. It's a car. There's an obvious difference here. If he's trying to sell it to you as a truck, he's lying to you. He's being a hypocrite. It's obviously a Pontiac Firebird. Even if he continually tells you, I tell you, it's a truck. He's obviously wrong because of the evidence that's right before your eyes. Now, one can easily tell the difference between a truck and a 99 Pontiac Firebird. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand the difference between a car and a truck. Even if, as Steve said earlier, some people can't understand the difference between a man and a woman, there are obvious differences that accompany these things very clearly to the naked eye as well, does it not? One can obviously tell these things. Now, it's a little bit harder at times and a little bit more subtler to tell the difference between a hypocrite and an actual Christian. One of the things is you can look at what they're actively doing. You can look at how they're acting. You can look at what their heart is set upon. You cannot look upon the heart itself because the Lord says that's reserved for him. The Lord looks upon the heart. Samuel did that as well in 1 Samuel chapter 16, didn't he? He was thinking that surely every one of the other sons of Jesse is going to be anointed king, right? He goes through all of them and the Lord says, that's not one. That's not him. That's not him. The Lord looks upon the heart. You're looking upon the outside. And he finally gets mad enough and says, do you have any more sons? And he says, well, there's, there's one, but he's out there in the sheep pasture. He's young. He's small. He's a runt. He's out there tending to the sheep. Samuel says, bring him here. And the Lord said, that's my man. I look upon the heart, not upon the outside. The hypocrite's heart, the apostate's heart, is black as tar within him. He's fooling himself, and he would fool you as well if he could. What's one way to tell the difference? Look at the evidences. Look at the fruits of salvation that are accompanying him. If he doesn't have fruits, or if he's doing so with a wrong motive, then there's cause for concern right there. He doesn't need assurance. He needs conviction. You, if you are doing these certain things, if you are actively clasping onto Christ, if you are actively progressing in the faith, then that should be a cause for assurance. That's what the apostle says, at least in verse 10. So we need to be able to tell the difference between a hypocrite and one who is truly born again. It's subtle. It's not as easy as looking at a truck versus a car or a man versus a woman. These things are more subtle. And they require a little bit of fine-tuning and understanding and insight to look to them. Thirdly, in verses 11 through 12, we see the hope of assurance. We read, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Stop right there. We desire. That's an intense longing. The apostle is hoping that you are going to have this in you. He's earnestly desiring these things. This is an earnest assurance. And he doesn't say just some of you. He wants each one of you have this same assurance. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's not just an assurance here or there. That's not just, uh, I might go to heaven. I might have a union with Christ. I might be justified by faith alone. I might have a strong faith. I might have a weak faith. No, he's saying he wants the same earnestness, a 
full assurance of hope. That's one that's overflowing with assurance as well. A certain confidence that not because of myself, but because of Christ, it's a full assurance of hope until the end. I know that I'm going to persevere because of what Christ has done. The proof is also in what I'm actively doing because of what Christ has done through me, because of what he's doing through me now. It's a proof, a full assurance of hope till the end. Why does he say that? So that you may not be sluggish. That's the warning right there. We're not to be sluggish in the Christian life and simply rest back on our laurels and say, let go and let God. That's not a biblical term, by the way. If anyone says that one to you by way of an aside, don't listen to them too, too much. Okay? The Bible nowhere says to let go and to let God. It does say work out your salvation in fear and trembling, though. So we are to continue to be not sluggish, but actively be working from the faith for the faith, working within the church, working within the household of faith. We're not to be sluggish, but what are we to be? But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is just like the faithful fathers of the Old Testament. After this, he's going to jump into an analogy with Abraham's assurance. Now, Abraham was one of the most assured people. Why is that? Because every time that the Lord said to do something, Abraham basically said, how high? He had some failings here and there, absolutely. He didn't believe God on the promises of that he would have Isaac, so he had Ishmael instead. And the Lord said, this isn't the seed of promise. But he had an assurance that God was going to bring this to pass later on. It wavers, just like our assurance does, does it not? But it is one that is primarily marked by a strong faith and patience to inherit the promises. I often think about that too, thinking of Father Abraham, how it would have been to have been almost 90 years old. I've been doing the same thing day after day after day in a foreign land in Mesopotamia, and all of a sudden the Lord comes and says, follow me and I'll make of you a great nation. And the man simply says, okay, let's go. What kind of faith is that too? I don't think I would do that even if an angel popped out of the blue too and told me this is what you're going to do. I'd have some serious and deep questions. What a faith that that man had. What is it not? What an assurance that he had that this Lord and Savior would truly bring these promises to pass. Well, the Lord is calling us. Have the same assurance too that even Abraham had because you have even a stronger faith than Abraham. Abraham looked forward to the promises. You look back at what God has done. There's even more revelation that you have, even more than Moses, who actually spoke with God. You have a more sure testimony. The book of Hebrews makes that clear so much. Therefore, you should have an even greater full hope of assurance because you know that all of these things have happened. Calvin made it very clear that this hope is tied into an assurance of perseverance. Can one be assured that they will persevere to the end? that they will be in eternity with Christ our Savior? And the answer is emphatically, absolutely, yes. You can have an assurance that you will persevere to the end. Contrary to what much of the church has said throughout her history, the Bible says you can and should have a full assurance of hope to the end. One does not need to have an assurance if there's no evidence. That's in verse 10 as well. If you're actively doing these things, the book of James as well shows that. But for the faithful... You should know that perseverance in hope is guaranteed by the Spirit. A great Westminster Shorter Catechism. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, 
perseverance there into the end. What's the first of those? Assurance of pardon. That's something that flows forth from your adoption, your justification, your sanctification. It's a marker of the Christian life that you will persevere there into the end and that you do have an assurance of pardon. Just like my dad, when he used to whip me, I knew that the man still loved me, even though I was actively having pain registered on my behind. I knew that the man loved me. One, because he said he loved me. Two, because he showed me he loved me. Your dad probably did the same to you. At least I pray that he did too. And if he didn't, well, your heavenly father loves you ever even more than an earthly father ever can. And he gives you these promises. Now this warning though, so that you may not be sluggish, do not fall for the trap of simply resting on your laurels when there's work to be done in the church or on yourself. If there is a root of sin that wells up within you, don't wait to quash it. Don't wait and let it fester and continue to grow. My wife and I were growing on VeggieTales in the late 90s. One of the VeggieTales episodes was the rumor weed. Larry Boy saw the rumor weed, and it started off as just this little bitty plant that was lying and making people tell sins. It's a silly story, of course. VeggieTales is supposed to be. However, though, the thing grows major towards the end. It's massive, and nobody can stop the rumor weed. It requires a great act in order to destroy it. If you're being sluggish right now, if there's a little bit of sin welling up in you, don't fall for the trap of just saying it's not that important or God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life or to let go and let God do it instead. Cut that thing. Nip it right then and there if you can. Take care of that sin. I'm preaching to myself on that one as well, too, because it's so important that we do not be sluggish in the Christian life and simply default to an assurance. We need to take care of the problems that arise right in front of us. That's what the rest of the warning is for. And also, brethren, take care of the example of faithful believers before us. I cannot tell you in this congregation how thankful I am for some of the older members, especially, who have been there, they've done that, they can give you counsel, and they can say, here's some of the victories that I've had in my life, and I've dealt with this similar sin, or I can give you something. I can impart a little bit of wisdom and gift to you. It's a wonderful thing when that happens. That's what the example of Abraham is here for as well. We are to attain a faith and a patience to inherit the promises, to be imitators of those who say, follow me as I am of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He knew where he was going. He knew he would inherit the promises. Even though he would cry out every now and again in Romans chapter 7 and elsewhere, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He had an assurance that God would do so. Let's push forward. Follow those who have went in the faith before us. Would any of the patriarchs say that the faith was easy to persevere in? Do you think that Abraham at 99 years old would have said, I know that I'm going to have a child soon? Well, that would have seemed ludicrous. Sarah laughed at that. That's why Isaac is a play on words that means laughter. There's an assurance there still, though. The patriarchs would have said, if they could be here now, I'm certain it's not easy to have that kind of faith or assurance. But you should attain to it, though, because it rests upon who God is and what he has done in Christ, not upon yourself. Now, this patience, this patience, this perseverance, this assurance, it requires a lot of patience and faith in God to persevere to heaven. It's not something that comes just overnight. It's not something that is easy to attain to necessarily. 
there's a lot of great hymns in those red hymnals that you have in the seats in front of you that are filled with a lot of depressing songs. William Cooper, for one instance. William Cooper, who wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. You know that man almost tried to kill himself several times? John Newton had to talk him out of it or rescue him. We're not always going to have assurance in Christ, the Christian life, but it's one that should be a primary marker of the Christian life. Brethren, there are examples of great assurance in humility to Christ while persevering to the end. Think of Paul's testimony. Paul had a pretty good life in Judaism, didn't he? He even says so in several of his epistles. He had it all going for him, and yet he rejected it. Moses, we'll read later in Hebrews chapter 11, had all the riches of Egypt at his disposal. He was a son of the Pharaoh, encountered it as nothing. Why is that? Because of the promises of God. Because he knew that he would do what he said he did. That's an assurance. Or John Knox, one of my great heroes. We've talked about naming a son Knox eventually, actually. John Knox, one of my personal heroes, who was on a French galley as a slave for years as he toiled away in the lower decks, rowing that with all those other men down there, still prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. And Scotland became one of the most godliest nations on the face of the planet for so long. Modern modernity withstanding. More missionaries went forth from Scotland than there did from almost anywhere else on the face of the earth, that little bitty country. Why is that? Because of faith and assurance of perseverance. That God would do what he said he did. That God would do this work in people's lives. The martyrs went to the stakes in Marie and England believing this. Latimer went to the stake believing this. Cranmer was persecuted because of this. The Scottish Covenanters were drowned sometimes because of these things. They all had assurance that God is true to his word, that Christ has done these things. He's done these things in me, and I know that he's done these things in me. And I'm going to keep going forward to the end of it. Not easy, is it? Easier said than done, but with God all things are possible. So brothers and sisters, what does this leave us with? Let us cultivate this assurance within us. Let us not simply rest back on our laurels and continue to repeat assurance, assurance, assurance to ourselves. Let us actively prove that assurance by the strength of our hands because it is God who holds us within his heavenly strong hands, infinitely stronger than any other thing in creation, infinitely stronger than sin, Satan, and temptation, or yourself. You can't take yourself out of God's promises because God's promises cannot and will not be refuted. He said it's going to happen, and it will happen. And isn't that worthy of a hallelujah as well? Because if you could lose your salvation, if you could get rid of it, you certainly would. But God, we have this blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Isn't that wonderful thought to think of? You can be assured that everything is going to be okay. My wife and I were talking a little bit ago. A lot of the new TV shows and such, and I'll close with this. A lot of the new television shows, and this isn't a moralistic don't watch, do watch. Don't worry about that. A lot of the more recent television shows that we've seen are so dark and nihilistic that have just a pessimistic view of the future, have a pessimistic view of everything going on around us. But you as a Christian, though, who know that 
the lion has been slain upon the stone table, just like Aslan was in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We who have this assurance know that all things are going to work out for good. We have an assurance that we will persevere there into the end. We have an assurance that all things will be made new again and that we're going to be there as well. The non-believer looks around him and says, it's nothing, it's worthless, it's not even worth living through. Might as well get as much pleasure out of it while you can and then die and become worm food. Brothers and sisters, we have an assurance that is far greater than the greatest riches of Egypt. And it's in the man who hung upon the cross. That's where our assurance comes from. The one who is working within you and has worked in you and will work in you. That's our greatest cause of assurance. Christ has done it. None can snatch us out of his hands. Sin, self, or Satan can't do it. His arms are strong and mighty. So let us take our yokes off and place them upon him and take upon his yoke. Have this blessed assurance because the Lord holds it out for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this blessed assurance that is there for the believer. It is not there for the non-believer. For Father, we should heed the warning passages to test ourselves, to see if we are truly hypocrites or whether we are truly children of the Most High. Oh, Father, our prayer is is that you would give your children this blessed assurance that Christ is ours and that we are in Christ. That you are causing us to do a good work. That you are actively working in, with, and through us. And that we do these things not because of our own glory, not because of selfish pride or ambition, but because God is worthy and because we love Christ and we love his people. Father, let us continue to do those things. Cause us to persevere therein to the end. Give us this blessed assurance, we do pray, that can only come from union to the man upon the cross. We ask all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.